Good morning, good morning, everybody on your feet. We're so glad you're here today. It's Memorial Day weekend, and so we are going to be honoring those who have served our country. The you know we are the land of the free because of the brave who have fought for our country and for our freedoms, and so we're grateful for that. But not only that, those of us who are belong to Jesus. Our freedoms are multiplied far beyond what the United States has on its own, right? So we're so grateful. We thank you, Lord. You are beautiful and you are awesome. Thank you for the freedom that you have given us. We are so very grateful and we are just going to lift your name. Thank you, Lord. It's the heartbeat of God. It's the rhythm and reason for love, the power of the cross. Much more. 
what you have. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Yes. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Come out of the dark, just as you are. Into the fullness of his love. For the Spirit is here, let there be freedom. Let there be freedom. Yes, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Give him a shout of praise. Tell him how much you love him. Thank you, God. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for freedom. You know, there was a time in my life that I did not realize that I was dead. I was breathing but not alive. And so if there's anybody in this place that has not realized yet that you need a relationship with Jesus Christ to be made alive, today is the day of salvation. And if, if you want to see me at the end of the service, we'll take care of that today. <laughs> you need Jesus. My shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my tomb Till I met you Hallelujah I was breathing but not alive All my failures I tried he was my tomb. Yes, till I met you. Thank you, Jesus. You called my name, and I ran out of that grave. Yes, out of the darkness into your glorious day. We bless your name. You called my name. Future, my 
I needed rescue. I needed rescue. My sin was heavy, but chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healing. Now your love is the air that I'm breathing. I have a future. My eyes are open. Because when you call my name, Christ. Amen. Thank you for life in Jesus Christ. You are so good to us, God. You are so good to us, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The Bible says that you, Lord, you set the captives free. You make the blind eyes see. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you made sure that I knew that that is the truth. Thank you, Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Mercy reigns, a 
sets the captives free. Whatever chains you may have on your life today, he wants to break those off. And I pray that in Jesus' name, you will let him do it today. Lord, I ask that you would let the chains fall. Let the chains fall. No more shackles. Thank you, Lord. To break every chain, break every chain. Break every chain. There is power. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. To break every chain. Break every chain, break every chain. Sing that again. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. An all-sufficient sacrifice so freely given such a price bought Swing wide. There is power, there is power in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. There is power in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. There is power in the name of Jesus. To break every chain, 
break every chain, break every chain, oh, to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. He made an all-sufficient sacrifice, an all-sufficient sacrifice, so freely given, such a
chain, break every chain, break every chain. Hallelujah. 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 Break the chains off. Let the chains fall, Lord. Break the chains off of me. <laughs> break the chains off of us, Lord. Whatever's holding us. Whatever's us holding us back from everything that you have for us, Lord. You are so good, God. You are so good, God. You are so good, God. Lord, I praise your holy name. I praise your holy name. I thank you that you are in this place. I thank you that you are with us today. And I believe you have a good word for us today. I bless you and I thank you for who you are and for all you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Good morning, PCA. As soon as I get up here, everybody sits down. What's going on? Karen had texted me or emailed me or whatever you call it where she told us that we were going to have a theme of red, white, and blue, so I borrowed this outfit from the former president. I don't know if you remember him. I want to welcome our guests. I know we do have one or two in here this morning. If you haven't had a chance yet, I'd like to have you fill out one of our VIP cards and drop it in the offering. We want to get to know you. You are a guest right now, but in 30 minutes, you can be a member of this family, and we would love to have you here. Memorial Day is a day when we honor our men and women who died while in military service. Some people think it's a day you honor all the dead, but it was really put on to honor the people in military service. Now, when I was a kid about the age of the military, they had something called the draft. You had a certain age, you signed up for the draft, and you just kind of waited around. You got married, you got kids, you, you got a job, but you still waited for the draft. I had a friend who asked me, he said, you know, instead of getting drafted, why don't you come join my Army Reserve unit? Great idea. You don't have to worry about being drafted. There was nothing going on. Something over in Vietnam, but who knew? So I joined it, and two weeks later, they had something called the Vietnam Escalation, where they drafted every guy my age. When you got there, they had a list of 10 places you could go. At the top, in two-inch letters, it said, Vietnam. Guess where everybody went? Vietnam. Except for me, I was stationed in Norman, Oklahoma. And during the time, you may not believe this, but during the time, not one Vietnamese got past Dallas when I was stationed in Norman. Until after the war, of course. Being my age, there's a lot of things I remember and the way they went. One was in grade school. You started the day with a flag salute and a prayer. When I got to high school, I was in the announcer's club. You started the day with a flag salute, a prayer, and a devotion. When I got to college, eh, not much was happening. But I was in college when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The next day, my entire fraternity and I walked over to the college chapel and prayed for our country. Now, a lot of those guys didn't go to church regularly, but they knew through their local churches, summer Sunday school, summer camps put on by churches, they knew who God was. They knew what eternal salvation was. In basic training, every Sunday morning, this was a while back, we marched to church. We prayed. We were allowed to pray. Even if they didn't go to church regularly, once again, they knew who God was because of the local churches. 
And then something came along called separation of church and state. What it really turned out to be was the state telling the churches what to do. But you could, you could worship God and you wanted to worship God. I don't know where I'm going with this. I do too. There's federal money that's in grade schools now, but they don't let God in there. There's federal money that's in high school now, but they don't let God in there. There's federal money in colleges, but they don't let God in there. And the same thing with the military. It's not the way it used to be. Now then, who pays for the local churches to tell you about God? You do, through your tithes and offerings. And that's what I'm up here for. It's something you're just giving back, only 10%, because all good things come from above, which God gives to you. So please remember that as the gentleman come forward with the purple bag. Memorial Day is a good day to remember for someone my age. Whenever place you went, God was, God was around with you. And now there's only certain places you can go, and one of them being your local church. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can be here today to worship you and to to memorize, to be, to give a memorial to these those who have died in service to our country. We ask you to take this offering, take it and bless it, dear Heavenly Father. Use it to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Our God, I probably shouldn't talk because country. We are very blessed here. I am made in America, made in the USA. <laughs> And I love this country. Is it perfect? No. <laughs> but I think it's the best. <laughs> Thank you, Lord.
for America yes, Day. Come on. Shout. Thank, Thank you, God, for, for America. This country. Thank you Hallelujah. for this country. Thank you for making Hallelujah. us free. You are good, God, and you get all the glory. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Amen. God bless you. Turn to your neighbor and say, you live in the greatest nation on the face of this earth. Thank you. America. Today, we have a nation that's changing constantly. And I believe Memorial Day weekend is a great time for all of us to push a reset button, don't you? We live in the greatest nation on the face of this earth. If you're a mom and you got up today in America and you did not have to choose which child you fed today, you are blessed. You live in a great nation. If you got up this morning and you freely came to church without worrying if you were going to be killed on the way here or once you are here on your way home, you live in the greatest nation on the face of this earth. And I got to tell you, I bleed red, white, and blue. As Pastor Karen said, I was made in America. <laughs> and I love this country. And it really, really hurts me when people today are talking down our country so badly. I don't think they understand, put into context, what it takes to be a great nation. We are here on Memorial Day weekend because we remember all of those who have gone before us and fought. All of those who have given their lives for this great nation. There are those standing in Arlington Cemetery today who've lost loved ones. There are those today who sent their sons and daughters off to war and all they received back was an empty coffin. I remember as a young man going to my first cousin's funeral. He had a twin brother. And because he was blown up by a grenade, there was not any casket that could be opened at that funeral. And today I think we carelessly toss around the word freedom. We carelessly toss around this great nation called America. And today I want us to all, I hope something is said today that jars you. I hope that something is done today that says, hey, wait a minute. Because I believe we need to stop once again as Americans and know the cost of freedom. The cost of freedom. As Christians, 
We understand the cost of freedom because Jesus gave his life. The Bible says that he bought and paid a free gift to us, the free gift of salvation through his blood. But sometimes we as Christians, we carefully toss around the freedom that we have in Christ. Christ said this, see to it that you do not return to slavery, but remain free in Christ. If we as Americans are not careful, we could very easily return to a life that is not free. If one thing I learned during all this pandemic is how quickly our government can take over our lives. I, I never thought I would see that in America, but I saw it very quickly. And so today I want to talk about the cost of freedom. But I don't feel like I can talk about it as well as someone else can because uh, my generation, we did not have a draft. My generation, I fell in love with a beautiful young girl, got married right out of high school and moved to pursue my life. I never went to war. My father was in World War II, stationed in Manila, Philippines. My home was very much patriotic. I am very patriotic. You are very patriotic because you're here on Memorial Day weekend. And so today, I would like for you to stand and give a PCA warm welcome to Staff Sergeant E6, Bill Williford. Would you please stand? Give him a big hand. Bill, come and join me. Love you, man. Can just sit right here. Here's your microphone. Amen. God bless you. you. May be seated. So today, I thought we'd take something in a little bit different direction. We have walking around among us heroes in our churches, people who have gone to battle and know what battle is. And so today, Staff Sergeant E6 Bill Williford's here. He and I have talked. I want you to pray for him and pray for his family uh, because today's going to be a hard day for him, a tough day, because he has never before shared some of the things he's going to share with you today. Because I know that um, in our conversation, um, when you've been in war, it's different than just talking about it. And so today, uh, Bill and his beautiful family, his beautiful wife, Bria, their three beautiful daughters, Haley, Madison, and Ella. And I just got to tell you, Ella's my favorite. <laughs> she always gives Pastor the biggest, greatest hugs every time she comes to church. Uh, but Bill, you have a beautiful family. And, and almost every Sunday when you leave church, I tell you that. Bill, what a beautiful family. And so um, would you just share with the congregation how you and your beautiful bride met? Hold it up close so they can hear you. Uh, Bree and I, we met... Let's see, seventh grade, I, it's the first time I ever met Bria, and we were classmates, we had a few classes together, and lo and behold, um, a lady that my dad worked with just happened to be her grandmother, we did some work for her, and she was trying to get me to date her, her granddaughter, and oh, she was just, she just wouldn't leave me alone about it, and then we Thank left God seventh grade and went on to eighth grade when well, me and her, we continued to have classes together where well, we started talking a lot. Um, and it was the summer between seventh or eighth and ninth grade that we really started to talk a lot on the phone. She was actually dating another guy and I kind of convinced her that she needed to leave him <laughs> to date me. Good move, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But September, September 1st of, of ninth grade, I wrote her a note and uh, said, well, hey, would you go out with me? And she, she said yes. And so we've been together ever since. Um, it's, been a, it's been a rough, rough road, but, but we've made it. That's and right. Uh, you're kind of like me. I think we have this together. God gifted us with our wives early in life because he knew we needed it, right? Yes, very much so. so uh, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for the backbone that she's given me, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I would have ended up and where I'd be at today. That's right. So thank God for wives, all you guys. Be thankful for that. So, Bill, as you're growing up a young man, you've met your beautiful bride-to-be, Miss Bria. What caused you or what made you decide to enlist? So what, what caused me to enlist was opportunities, really, more than anything. I, coming from Ponca City, had never done anything, never went anywhere. And at the time, I, I didn't have, my family didn't have a whole lot of money. I didn't really have a direction in life. I didn't do really good, good in school. But I figured that when they called me up my, my summer between my junior and senior year, and they said, hey, how about you come and join the National Guard? And I said, you guys pay for college? Oh, yeah, we pay for college. The, the recruiter, he came and he talked to my, my mom and myself, and he said, you know, right now, there's nothing going on. And he said that, you know, the Oklahoma National Guard, Desert Storm I was in, we, we really didn't do much. We guarded some airports. He said, you can pay for college. I was going to be a firefighter. You can go to school and do what you, you wanted to do. And, and I said, okay. So July 11th of 2001, I went down to MEPS, which is in Oklahoma City. It's the Military Interest, Interest Processing Center. And uh, raised my right hand, swore into the military. And like I was telling Pastor, up until that point, it was just kind of all surreal. It wasn't, it, wasn't really, it wasn't really real to me, the, the duty and the weight in which this would carry. And uh, when I got down to MEPS, but when you swear in, there's a big billboard on the wall that they make you read. And what, they, what it is is it states all the duties and responsibilities that you're swearing under oath and that the penalties of those duties. And at the bottom, in big underlined bold letters, it says penalty of death. And at that point, I realized uh, this is kind of a real deal. And so that was the first time it hit me that I'm doing something that's bigger than me. It's just, if it carries that much weight, it must be a pretty big deal. That's right. And so I raised my hand. I swore in July 11th, like I said, 2001. Went back home. I was on a delayed entry program because I hadn't graduated yet. And um, that year, we went to school, and on September 11th of 2001, you know, September 11th happened. That's right. And when that happened, everything got real patriotic. And all of a sudden, I thought, man, uh, what'd I do? But uh, I graduated early, December, because I met all my credit requirements. Um, after graduating, I started to do, I started to allow myself to float and do things I shouldn't be doing with people I shouldn't have been hanging around with. And uh, 
after getting into some trouble, the judge that I had to stand in front of, my mom had to go and talk to him and said, hey, he's getting ready to go into the military. He's going to get out of here. And she said, you need to bump up your report date. I said, yeah, yeah, I do. So we went back to the recruiter, and he took me back to MEPS, and they said, hey, we want to bump up his report date and get him gone. So it was June, I believe now, June, that I left March. It was March that I left for basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, continued through basic AIT, advanced individual training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And came back home because I was a reservist. Within a few weeks to a month of me being home, my reserve unit called us all up to deploy to go to Afghanistan. And uh, I told her, I said, oh, you know, we're gonna go, we got to go to Afghanistan. They're going to take us down to Fort Shield, and we're going to train up because in the reserve you have to do a train up before you deploy. Spent four months. It was supposed to be three weeks. Spent four months almost to get down to Fort Shield to train. And the reason it was that way was because Three weeks was the minimal requirement at the time of training that had to be performed before a reservist unit was deemed ready to go. Um, we were attached to 1st Cav, and we were going to supply them. I was an 88 Mike logistics patrol. It was my job set. I was basically providing supplies to the front line to anyone that, that uh, was out. Um, so... We reported to Fort Seal. After about three weeks, we got told that the first cab got stood down due to the fact that Turkey had decided that they were not going to assist the United States and allow us to use their ports to input our personnel and our equipment. And so they pushed us back. We continued to train. We continued to stay there since we were already ready to go instead of then tasking another unit to come and to fill a slot for another possible deployment. We stayed, and we tried to jump on whatever came up. Um, in that time frame, I, I realized that the Army was something that I really wanted to do. It, uh, it gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a sense of, of drive. It gave me a sense of something bigger than myself. And so after we finally couldn't find anything, they said, hey, we're going to demobilize. We'll go back home. Went back home to a wife that was few weeks after I came home, we found out that uh, she was pregnant. I had been able to come back and forth between Fort Seal. <laughs> but, uh... I'm glad you added that part in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I told her after realizing that she was pregnant and the job that I had as a mechanic, because that's what I had went to school to do while I was still in high school, that that wasn't something I wanted to do the rest of my life that the military was for me, and that uh, her being pregnant, I needed to be able to provide for her and for my child. And if anything, they provide for you. And so I told her, I said, I'm going to go active duty. And she said, nope, I'm not going, I'm not doing it. And uh, I told her, I, I need you to come with me to do this. And she said, absolutely not. And I told her, I said, well, I've got to be able to provide for this baby. I'm going to do it. And very reluctantly, she followed me. And uh, 
So I went back to Memphis the third time after convincing a two-star general of the Department of Oklahoma National Guard that I needed to join the active duty to get released from the National Guard. And so went to MEPS to get my fall-on orders of my active duty unit. And I asked him, I said, I really would like to go to Colorado. <laughs> Fort Carson, Colorado, I'd really like to have. I had a reservist guy that was at prior service, and he said Fort Carson was where it was at. I said, that's where I want to go. And they said, that's really hard to do. And uh, lo and behold, they said, hey, I got your orders to Fort Carson, Colorado. you got to report in a couple days. I said, okay. So I ran home. I grabbed my wife and everything I could pack into a car. We went out to Colorado, and I reported to the Welcome Center there. And that was, that was kind of the start of my entry into active duty. Even hey, how many of you want to go to Colorado? Just sign up. All you got to do is. So you got into Colorado. Yes. And then you were starting to get ready for deployments. So what was your first deployment? So we got to Colorado, and it really started to speed up from there. Um, as soon as we got there, I realized the reason I got so lucky to go to Colorado was because Fort Carson is a high-mobility, high-deployment installation. And they were needing every body they could get because they were deploying. And so I got on ground in October, the end of October, and we deployed in December. See. And uh, so I got to spend about three months with my wife in, in Colorado. And while, while we, were, we were trying to figure out life and, and being from Oklahoma and never, other than basic training, never really doing anything, we just kind of were struggling. We didn't know what to do. She was pregnant. And like I was telling Pastor, you know, God just always showed up. He always showed up to take care of us. And anyway, so uh, we, were, we were living, had no money, had nothing, really, barely had a car, and uh, didn't know it, but living in Colorado, it's really cold. October, November, it starts <laughs> getting really cold. You need to have, you need to have fuel in your, in your tank more than just on E, because if you don't, it might freeze up and it might bust that fuel pump. That's right. So here I am, I got a pregnant wife, we're living in a hotel that they provide for you on post if you don't have a place to stay, trying to get a housing unit, being a married soldier, you have to wait for housing unless you're going to go out on the economy, but I knew I was leaving soon, I wanted her to have something on the installation that we, we could have safety, and uh, they said, well, there's a long waiting list, it's going to be a few months, they're probably going to be gone. I was out trying to figure out what was wrong with our car after not putting gas in it because I didn't have any money. And realizing that we had busted the fuel pump, and as I was out there with a pregnant wife and trying to diagnose this car, the guy who was over all of the assignments for housing, because the building that the, they housed us in for the temporary housing of the hotel and the housing office were all in one big building. He happened to be leaving work one day, and he saw us. And we kind of we told him what was going on because he was asking. 
And lo and behold, within a week, we had a house. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. So, yeah, we, uh, we got all set up. We got her set up. We got ready to go. And uh, never been deployed before. Never, never done anything like that. Neither had most of the people in my unit. We got lucky enough that we got a couple of E5s who had came from the 82nd who had been deployed before. And they went with us on our first deployment. Um, before you deploy, you got to get all mobilized and get all medical screened. And they start training you even more harshly to get ready to go and really drill it into your head that uh, you're doing something bigger than yourself, that the bad guys are the bad guys. We call them Hodgy, as, as demeaning that might be. But you've got you to separate humanity from the enemy. So we left, we went, I was, uh, we were stationed in um, Kuwait at the time, Camp Arab John Kuwait, and our duties were to supply everyone on the front line their supplies out of the supply yards that were in Kuwait. So we drove trucks from Kuwait into Iraq every, every day. Uh, most missions would be anywhere from 6 to 16 hours on the road. Extremely, extremely hot. Kuwait's probably the hottest place I've ever been in my entire life. I think the hottest day that I saw there with the heat index before it, because you're real close to the ocean and you get a lot of humidity off the ocean. But the heat index, it was like 147 degrees. Wow. The actual temperature outside was in the 120s. Wow. So hot, you couldn't touch anything. It would burn you immediately. Yeah. Uh, wearing a lot of gear, driving trucks. I mean, it was... It was, it was hard, but we all had purpose, direction. And one thing that I want to point out was Vietnam, you had, you had the draft going on. This conflict, it was an all-volunteer force. And that was, that was big to me that we, everybody that was there had signed up to be there. That's right. And so a post-9-11 signee or post-9-11 person who comes into to the armed forces, it's kind of a big deal to me because right. you know what you're signing up for. That's right. Um, but so we're there. We're, we're, we're running missions back and forth to Iraq and uh, resupplying all the, the, the various supplies um, that go up. And then whenever we would be going up to an installation or a FOB, a forward observation boat base, we would bring back everything that they needed to bring back, which was primarily mail, so that they could keep correspondence with people back home. At this point, OIF-2, OIF-1, OIF-2, there wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure in place, especially up north in Iraq. Um, so the people that were there, they were living very, very primitively. And I had the luxury of only having to do that when we were on the road and we were having to stay overnight. We called it Ronning. Was staying overnight wherever it was that we were supplying, and we would have to share in their misery. But we would always try to bring a little touch with us as something, as a gift, a Hershey's bar, something that we could get they couldn't get. That's right. And so these guys were really—they were really having to suck it up. Um. And like I told Pastor, I'd share a little part. Um, I just want to talk about the cost of war. And one thing I want to say today is I'm only here 
Because Memorial Day is about those who gave that ultimate sacrifice. That's right. And they can't be here. That's right. So he asked me to share. I, I agreed. But I was there, and uh, one of the missions we did, we were resupplying a fob that was on the outside of Fallujah. I don't know if anybody here knows anything about Fallujah. But it was a very, very deadly area of Iraq. Um, the 82nd Airborne had moved out. They were, they were covering this area of Fallujah, had pushed most of the insurgency, most of the Taliban out of the area. The Marines came in. When they came in, they took, con they took contact. Um, the Marines can be a little bit hot-headed. <laughs> they ended up returning fire and killing a lot of civilians. This enraged the chiefs of the area. At that moment, Taliban really started to come back in, and they really started to have a really rough time. Matter of fact, one of the first times that I ever knew of in Iraq that a fob or a installation of the U.S.'s that actually had been attacked and partially overran was right after this in Fallujah. And uh, my unit had gotten tasked to run support missions in and out of this area to resupply these people because they were, they were in a bad way and spending them every day, all day in foxholes, in fighting positions, in the sun, no water, no food, nothing. So we started building these Mad Max machines, we call them, and running supply missions in and out of Fallujah. Um, one of the fobs in near Fallujah that we supplied was a fire base. It was a marine fire base. Their job was to take calls for fire to suppress the enemy whenever the, the infantrymen were out trying to find the Taliban. These guys were firing one, 105 and 155 towed howitzers, big cannon guns. And uh, this fob this, this that we were resupplying was a little bitty fob. It was probably as big as this church maybe. And it was very hastily built because most things were. And... It was lined with a perimeter of what we called HESCO barriers. HESCO barriers are about a seven-foot-tall gunny sack with a steel cage that you dump dirt into to make a hasty wall. Um, there was, they were double-stacked, and that was our perimeter. This firebase took contact daily, and we were going in there to resupply them because they were all out of rounds, so they couldn't do their mission. It was small enough that our trucks, when we would come in, were the biggest thing there. The truck that I drove at the time was a PLS, a pallet load loading system. Had 44-inch tall tires that had a deck on the back of it that set about six foot off the ground, and then whatever you, you were hauling was on top of that. And uh, this day, we were hauling munitions, some towed howitzers. Pulled into the installation to offload, and me being a brand new... I was a specialist at the time, but brand new to conflict, brand new to this whole deal, very gung-ho, very high-speed individual. Pulled in, and I jumped out, was going up and, and, and unratcheting and unloading the, the supplies that we had on the back of our truck. Uh, it was 
pretty high off the ground when I was standing on top of it. I was probably, gosh, that was probably about 10, 12 foot off the ground. In my gaps of judgment, I kind of didn't realize that, hey, you're the tallest thing around. And this 14-foot berm that's built around this installation with that hill over there, you're the, you're the big old target. And I didn't think anything about it. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a little Toyota pickup truck. We called them technicals. They used them for hasty attacks. I saw it come up and park at the top of this hill. And I really didn't pay it much mind. But something told me I needed to look that way. I don't know. About the time I looked that way, there was a guy standing up in the back of that truck and he was holding an RPG. And he fired that RPG directly at me. And I just thought, this is it. I had an E5, that 82nd uh, Airborne E5 that had deployed, deployed before, and he told us all before we left, he said, hey, when God punches your time ticket, that's it. And I said, do everything you can till that day. And I just thought, man, this is it. And so, I don't know. It was unconscious of myself. I just went weak. Everything in me just, I just thought, this is going to hurt. And I just let myself stop feeling. I just completely checked out. And when I did, my legs gave out. Everything just gave out. And I just crumpled and fell to the ground like a sack of potatoes. But when that happened, I felt that RPG go right by my head. And I thought, when I hit the ground, everybody was hollering, bunker, bunker, bunker. I hit the ground, and I just scrambled for everything I had. And right then, I realized, man, this is not a game. This is for real. Right. You know, they're really trying to kill me. But uh, when that happened, and it solidified in my head that, that I'm here to do a job, that it's ultimately going to take people's lives. Um, you know, it was kind of up to that point, everything that we had encountered had been enemy very far off, firing at us, trying to stay very far away, um, so far away that a tracer ran in real slow and died. And as soon as they contacted one of the vehicles or the surface of the road, it would go boom. And you get so numb to that. You get so numb from the mortars and the artillery rounds coming in during the night that it just becomes routine. And they always preach to us, don't, come, don't become complacent. Don't allow yourself to let this become normal. Um, but that, that gets really hard. That, 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 when that happened, um, it, it shook me back. It shook me back to life. And, and I, I finished out that deployment um, with a few other incidences. Um, but for the most part, that, that right there really brought it into my, the frontal of my, of my mind that I'm here and I'm going to do the best job I can do. When Bill told me that, I thought, I have never in my life experienced an RPG coming directly at me. And he said that when he collapsed, that he felt the heat of that thing go right by his neck. And uh, I cannot imagine 
not only going through that, but having to constantly live with things like that the rest of your life. And so a lot of times when we're talking about, you know, our war heroes, well, they're here, they're fine. I got to tell you, they live with a lot of, a lot of uh, scar tissue. Uh, and so that was deployment number one. Bill, what happened in deployment number two? So after being home for about a year, actually we were home for about nine months, we, we fell on orders again to redeploy. And at this course in military service, the deployments were coming so rapidly that you only got about 12 months back home. And that was because the Department of the Army had decided that it, you needed 12 months to try to see some of your family. And so we were home, I was still at Fort Carson, still in the same unit. Within nine months, we came down orders again to go back to Iraq. Um, and so, this is one part, I, I don't know that I told him, but uh, one of the things they were doing to allow people who had been deployed sometime at home, especially people who had families like myself, brand new daughter that I didn't, I forgot to tell you, one of the biggest parts of my first deployment That's was right. I was going to remind you of that in yes. just a moment. So my daughter, my wife was pregnant while I was deployed in that first deployment, and I forgot to say this, but my daughter, she was due about three months after I left. My daughter's birthday is March 10th. I left in December. We were pulling missions, and, the, and like I said, the, the infrastructure in, in Iraq and Kuwait at the time was not the greatest. Uh, we did have an MWR where I was stationed in Kuwait that had phones that you were allowed if you stood in line. If you had the time to stand in line and got up to the phones, you had 15 minutes. The line was so long during the day that I would normally not make the, the trek down there to try to call because I'd have to come back and report back before it was even time to make, use the phone. But my wife was pregnant and I knew I needed to call her. We got back off the road one night off a mission. It was probably about 2 o'clock in the morning or so. Uh, there's a time, you know, pretty good time change between here and there. And uh, I thought to myself, I need to walk down to the MWR and make a phone call. So you can't do anything at this point without a battle buddy. So I woke up, a buddy of mine, I said, hey, let's go make, let's go make a phone call. I want to call my wife. He said, okay. So we drove, we, we, no, we didn't drive. We walked down to the MWR, stood in line. Being that it was 2 in the morning, it wasn't a bad line. I got to the phone and I made my phone call. And when I called my wife, she did not answer. And it was her sister. And I said, where's Bria? And she said, she's in labor. I thought, huh, good time to call. So I, 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 I said, so, you know, what, what, what's going on? And I, I just hear Tara, her sister, was just breathing like, and like she said to me, she said, I, I said, is that Bria? She said, no, that's me. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, you know, how much, because I knew labor was, it could be a long, drawn-out process. Well, they had already been there quite a few hours. She was literally having her at that moment. So I stayed on the phone, and I, my 15 minutes were up, but. I told them, I said, hey, man, you got to give me a minute. But I stayed on the phone, and I was allowed to hear my daughter born. And uh, that was hard. That was hard to do because uh, my kids are everything to me. 
But anyway, so. So I think God may have had a little bit to do with you getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> making a phone call. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, that's more, more than anything. That is the theme of my life is God has always stepped in. And it's for some reason, and I don't know why, he has always guided me where I needed to be. Okay, now back to your second deployment. So back to my second deployment. We were back in Iraq. We were stationed at at Bagram Airfield. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm I'm mixing up deployments. We were stationed at Biop, which is Baghdad International Airfield. Being that my job is transportation, we are normally stationed near an airfield because whenever supplies are flown in, we are there then on the ground to truck it because it can't be flown to all these little fobs. They don't have the resources to have things flown in. So we have to, on the ground, take it to them, which puts us out on mission in the country more than a lot of other jobs. Um, we, are, we spend, like I said before, we would spend anywhere from, there's, we had missions that were 20 hours, but we would spend anywhere from six to 20 hours out amongst anyone, the enemy, civilian population, whatever. And so on my second deployment, we were stationed there in uh, Iraq. And uh, at one point of that deployment, we, our task was to, there again, the 82nd. We always ran into the 82nd. <laughs> but the 82nd had moved out of, an inst- out of an area that they had been policing, and they had pushed all the insurgency out of the area, and so that no longer was a hot spot. So now... The next unit that was coming and falling in had decided they were going to move to a new, hotter area. So our task was to go out and be gone for about two weeks and help the engineers to load up this entire installation and move it from one area to another. In the meantime of shrinking resources at this one and trying to rebuild them over here, we were just living dirty. And... uh, very, very hot area, Mamadia, Yusufia, if anybody wants to look that up. And uh, one night when we were flying or we were driving. And, and another thing, we, we did all of our, most of our missions at night. We, we had to very much be able to flip-flop. So it becomes very hard on your body. But you would pull missions at night because it was easier for us to therefore see the enemy and engage the enemy. Because if we move under the cover of darkness and we get contact, we can see where it's coming from. And one night we were driving. The caveat to that is, is that by this time, they had really started to use what was called IEDs. IEDs are improvised explosive devices. Um, they're very much a makeshift enemy, but it makes them very hard to fight. They're very, very... Um, smart about what they do and they are very well uh, versed in making things up as they go, which makes it very hard for us to constantly change our TTPs, our tactics, techniques and procedures to constantly encounter and change our our ways of doing things. They had started doing these IEDs because like I said, they were so scared of us that they would fire from so far away, they never wanted to come and meet us face to face. So it it was really hard to fight our enemy when they wouldn't meet us face to face. And so one night we were driving under cover of darkness, makes it really hard to see these IEDs. I was driving along 
in my PLS and didn't see it, and an IND detonated. And when it did, it knocked me out. I was driving, I had a TC, a TC is a truck commander, it's just the term. TC is the person that is in the vehicle, in the passenger seat, and his duties are to be looking out for enemy, and also to ensure that we're going the right way, ensure that it has all the comms going and all that kind of stuff. But it knocked me unconscious for a few seconds, um, and he reached across the doghouse and grabbed the steering wheel and controlled the PLS as it continued to go down the roadway. Uh, that IAD also happened to be laced with a subfer. That vapor of that chlorine is so caustic that the, the masks that we are issued to wear in case of any kind of chemical or biological attack are only good for chlorine for about 30 seconds. It'll eat the filter right out of that canister of that mask. And so if I would have been conscious, there still would have been much I could have done. But we did end up getting pushed out of that area. That chlorine has damaged my lungs. I, to this day, have never smoked, but I, to this day, have some lung issues that I deal with that are becoming more and more prevalent as I age. But uh, that, that was the probably, uh, other than the fact that we constantly were being rained down upon by mortars, and one of the things that I really wanted to say is that you're constantly under a, a heightened level of alertness that you just live there. You just live at that state. But that was, that was probably the biggest thing for my second deployment. So the first deployment, you got an RPG fired at you. Second deployment, IED with chlorine bleach that goes into your lungs. So what happened on your third deployment? <laughs> so... Uh, another thing about that second deployment, so this this first deployment was 13 months. I left in December. I came back in January the following year. That second deployment, we left, um, what was it, September? Yeah, it was September. Uh, we left, and we came back in December that following year. It was 15 months. Um, and that wasn't a good day. That was not a good day whenever they pulled us up, and they had all the chaplains there, and we knew something was going on, and they were like, hey, you guys are due to redeploy back to the States in about a month, but no, you're not. You guys are going to stay. We need bodies on ground, and we can. At this point, this is OIF 4, 5. The, the Department of the Army and the whole brand, all branches of the military had seen such a mass exodus of personnel that we just didn't have the bodies. And so they needed us to stay. And they said, hey, you know, you guys are going to have to stay here. But so that deployment ended. We, we came back home, and then the third deployment in between my second and third deployment, I, I actually came on orders. By this time in E5, I am in charge of soldiers, and I was on my second deployment as well. I had really gained this respect and, and honor of these guys, and I'd really grown to love leading soldiers and really took that duty to heart. And uh, so it made it all the much harder whenever you lost one or something happened. So third deployment, I came down in orders before that deployment to get reassigned re to from Fort Carson to Fort Bliss, Texas. And I went to my first sergeant and I told him, I said, hey man, I, I don't, I don't want to go to Fort Bliss. 
we were already due, we were already tapped to go to Afghanistan in about four months. It wasn't quite to stop loss. Stop loss is when you get so close to deployment that they stop all movement from your unit. And he said, well, you're not going to make stop loss. Your report date is this, and so you're going to have to go. You're going to have to do what the Department of the Army wants you to do. And I said, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I'd like to stay here. I know these guys. I want to stay, and I want to deploy with them. He said, the only thing I can do is put you on Advon. The only thing I can have you do is you volunteer to go advance party to go to Afghanistan. And I said, I'll do that. So I volunteered to leave early from my wife and my kids. So I only got about 11 months between my second and my third deployment. And uh, we got to Afghanistan, and Afghanistan was a whole new animal in Iraq. It was very much more, the enemy in Afghanistan was very much more put together. They were not so ragtag as they had been in Iraq. So we got to Afghanistan, and we saw quite a bit of contact on the road. Not only did we do that, but many of the installations, small installations in Afghanistan, they were fully overran and attacked and had mass casualty events. And we would have to go in and we'd have to clean that up. It became, at this point in my deployment, in my deployment in my military history or career, that I was, I was wore out. I was wore thin. It was really starting to take a toll on me, and I was really starting to not deal with it well. And... Uh, one night, as I laid in my bunk in our housing development that they had just finished building for us, and like I told Pastor, at this point in the conflict, we were doing the best we could to win hearts and minds, so we were trying to give a career set to these local Afghanis, and so we would bring them on the installation, and we would train them to do jobs. Engineers, my brother-in-law just happened to be at this installation. He was a plumber for the Air Force. They would bring them on, and they would have them do the jobs, and they would oversee them, and they would teach them these careers. He was doing the plumbing on this housing development that they were building for us. They were taking these metal containers like we have back here behind the church, and they were stacking them three high, welding them together, turning them into housing units, plumbing them, and having these local nationals do it. Two days after we moved into these containers, they're not hardened. There's nothing around them. Two days after we moved into these containers, I was sitting on my bunk, my top bunk, my back against the wall, and I was on my laptop. And all of a sudden, an explosion happened, and I got propelled off of my bunk. I came to my feet, and I ran toward the door. My room, my container was the bottom floor, corner unit. So as soon as I exited my room and I exited the hallway, I was outside. Right outside was anybody's been in the military, a lot of them smoke. There's a smoking area. And uh, that smoking area now was so full of smoke that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. So when I exited that container and I hit that, I, it was just like hell on earth. All you could hear was people screaming. 
couldn't see anything. All you could smell was sulfur. And so here I am. I was kind of around for bed. I was just wearing shorts, nothing else. First person I came up to was a soldier of mine. He was laying on the ground and just covered in blood from the waist down. His legs were tore up. And at that moment, like I said, it had taken a toll. At that moment, I just stopped and I froze and I didn't know what to do. Literally, everything in my head left and I just didn't know what to do. And I just stood there. What felt like an eternity. And that weighs on me so bad to this day that I I saw him and didn't know what I was going to do. And after I finally realized I need to get a tourniquet on his leg, I ran back towards through the smoke towards where I knew my room was to grab just a T-shirt so I could tourniquet his leg. Luckily, everyone else had much more frame of mind. By the time that I made it back out into the smoke, they were throwing bodies onto a bus that we had and getting them to the TMC, the True Medical Clinic that was down inside the installation. And so when I came back and he was gone, I just met up with another E6 of mine and we went to the bunker to get a head count. Everybody went to the bunker. That was kind of the, that was the procedure that anytime we took attack, go to the bunker, get your personnel count. We made it to the bunker and we were doing head counts and we realized, okay, so we knew X, Y, and Z had made it on to through hearing had made it on to the bus to go to the TMC. Um, but we were still one man short. Didn't know where he was. So we went to find him. We went to his room. His room happened to be the direct impact of the rocket that we took. And Sergeant David Davis, E5, was laying in his bunk in his freshly pressed good uniform that we all instructed our soldiers that you had to keep one uniform set aside and not used because when you go home in R&R, you don't want to go home looking like complete trash. We already come home, I told my wife this, I said, you know when I'd come home for R&R, what did I look like? She said, different, skinny. You know, I, I walked around in the States about 185 pounds. My deployment weight was 155 every time. I'd get to that, and I would just, that's what I was at. And uh, so we, would told, we told our soldiers, you know, keep you a nice set of boots and a nice uniform, no blood, no stains, no nothing on it. That's what you're going to go home in. He was in that uniform because he had a flight out within an hour to go home and see his sixth child born. They were going to induce his, his wife when he got home so that he could be there for his sixth child. So, Sergeant David Davis never saw it coming. Thank God he didn't suffer. But, uh, that was, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I got really upset when all that happened because the military was putting hearts and minds above the safety of these soldiers. And the Afghanis that were coming in and building 
doing these things in our installation, teaching them how to survey, how to weld. They knew exactly where they built that, and we were there two days, and they hit us, and this guy died. And so I went back to my room after completely exploding and losing my military bearing. And the chaplain and the first sergeant commander had to take me aside and tell me, you're tearing these soldiers up. Go, 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 go away. So as I told him, I said, this, this is, we need to hunt these guys down. We need to find these guys you guys had coming in and working on this project. We need to hunt them down, and we need to take them out. And so they told me to go to my room. So I went back to my room, and at this time I hadn't realized it. My room was on the corner, bottom of the building, right outside the smoke area, or right within inside the smoke area. And actually they had stacked a container over the top and overlapped to where the, they could put this pole in and hold a cubby right inside where my, my housing unit was so the guys could be out of the weather and kind of gather there and congregate and smoke and do their soldier thing. And uh, when I went back to my house, I was walking back, and all I could see was the outer wall of my housing unit, and it was just like Swiss cheese. And I thought, man, I don't know how I made it through that without getting any shrapnel. And I started looking, and right in the wall where my back was, and I was sitting on the inside of that wall, was a spot, a line, where there was no shrapnel. Left, right, hold. Right where that line was, where I was sitting on the outside of the unit, was that pole holding that top container up. And that pole was just covered in shrapnel. And I dug about a quarter-sized chunk of shrapnel metal out of that pole. And had that pole not been there, it would have smoked right through my back. And uh, I thought to myself, man, and this is the weight I carry, Why? Why me? Why not Sergeant Davis? He's got six kids. <laughs> but uh, that was that was hurting pretty hard for me to carry around. So they ended up pulling me pulling me off mission, putting me in the headquarters unit, and having me be in charge of the missions that would go out at night and run the com comms and getting them all prepared, prepared and, and ready to roll out. And uh, that, was, that was my third deployment. I'm trying real hard not to come over and hug you right now. <laughs> but we don't understand what our men and women bring home with them. You know, the problem is that we today look around and we see Bill and his beautiful wife, Bria, their beautiful daughters, they have a beautiful home, they're like Ken and Barbie, and we just all look at them and go, wow, you guys just have it made. You have absolutely no issues in your life whatsoever. I mean, look at them. They're handsome, they're beautiful, and we don't know what goes on inside of a person. We don't know the kind of war that's still being fought every day. He was in the armed service 13 years. 13 years of his life. We've talked through very quickly this morning 
there were other incidences where a friend of his was riding in a truck. Uh, RPG took a leg off while he was sitting in the truck. Uh, horrible, horrible things. And we think just because men and women come home from war that the war's over for them. No, it rages on every day, doesn't it, Bill? Every day, uh, battles going on. Every day, he's walking around with, why am I here? Why, why did God spare my life? And I shared with him in the office, it's because you have a beautiful wife and, and daughters who need you. And he knows that. He has a purpose in life. But he also carries around the weight of the men that he was over, the men that he was a part of. And, and they, they, they tell you, get 110% of your group because you're not going to have enough. You're not going to come back with the same men you leave with, or women. And these things go on and on and on. And so today I want to be able to share. And listen, this is the first time he has ever shared this publicly with anybody. And uh, I don't know how much courage, it's about courage. Not only for him, but for his lovely wife, Bria, sitting right over there, who's reliving all of this as every time he speaks. How much courage this takes to take down the walls that you put up and let everybody come in and to be transparent and to let everybody see not only your heart, but what goes on in your head and what goes on in your life. And today, we are honored to have men and women like this in our church, and we are honored to have men and women like this in our nation. Yes. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Is there anything else you want to say? I don't know. Do you want to say anything about the missionaries? I will. I will. Okay. There's, um, well, there's one more thing. You can be seated for just a second. Last Sunday, I was preaching. And I was talking about Jesus going through the crowd and all this because it wasn't his time. And I said, so... MC Hammer wasn't the first one to say, can't touch this. Now that was not in my sermon notes, not anywhere in my message. I never thought about saying it. And when it came out in my mind, I'm thinking, shut up. What are you doing? Why are you saying this? This has nothing to do with your message. But Bill, what does MC Hammer have to do with this interview? So after all of my military service and asking why, why me, why, why was I the one that, that walked away so many times that I shouldn't have, I started asking God that, and I, I, I said, God, will you just show me, show me I'm, I am where I'm supposed to be at in life? And there's been many, 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 many times in my life that I've had something come up for no reason at all, stand out. And then lo and behold, just days, minutes. Sometime after that point, something will hit me right in the face that correlates to that very thing that shows me because I'll be asking, you know, am, I, am I in where it's supposed to be? And he'll show me. You're right where you need to be. Last Sunday, we were pulling off of our street right here in El Camino and there's a house right across the road and this guy stepped out and he had on these pants and my wife, for no reason at all, it struck her, and she was, thought she needed to say something about it. She said, why is he wearing those pants? I would not step outside in those pants. I said, honey, those are MC Hammer pants. Those are from the 80s. Everybody loved those pants. And then pastor, in his sermon, and we've been asking for the past couple weeks, and it's been a few months since we've been reassured we're at where we need to be at in life. 
pastoring a sermon happened to, and it just, it's always something like that where it, it's something that should have never stood out. He should have walked out, should have been no big deal, even if he was wearing his Mr. Gamer pants. We should have pulled that corner and never even took two seconds to look at him. But she wouldn't let it go. And then we came to church. And well, did you lean over and tell her when I said that? As soon as he said, can't touch this, and he started, I said, see, we're right where we need to be. That's right. Isn't that how God does stuff? That's crazy. Amen. God bless you, buddy. Love you, man. I love you, man. I love you. Amen. Theodore Roosevelt said this, Never throughout history has a man lived a life of ease that he's left a name worth remembering. We need to remember today, don't we? And Ronald Reagan, one of my favorite presidents of all time, said this. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't, we didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Today we need to hand it on to the next generation. So for the next moment, would you please watch this video? Dear Dad, after all these years, I've never stopped writing. I still remember many of the letters I've written you and the moments I wish you could have seen. Dear Daddy, I'm sad you had to leave, but I'm trying real hard to remember that you told me you'll always love me and to write you all the time. I didn't want you to go, but you pulled me close and hugged me tight, and you said that some things are worth fighting for. Dear Daddy, I learned how to roller skate today. You'd be so proud. I fell down sometimes and skinned my knees, so I tried again and again. I was brave just like you. Hey, Dad. Sorry I haven't ridden in a while. I'm 14 today. Can you believe it? Don't worry, though. No boyfriends. Mom and I are doing well. Sometimes we get lonely, but it's not too bad. Dear Dad, high school graduation. I really wish you were here today. College is just around the corner. I'm staying close to home, though. I figured you'd want me to help keep an eye on Mom. Dear Dad, today I married the man of my dreams. He reminds me of you. He's gentle yet strong. He loves serving me, and he can make me laugh all the time, just like you could. Granddaddy went ahead and walked me down the aisle, said that you'd be proud of me. It was a wonderful day seeing so many friends. We talked about you a lot and how we wished you were here. Oh, Daddy, I love coming to visit you. This time, I brought someone else. Your granddaughter. I tell her about you all the time. We talk about the letters I write you and that maybe she can write you too someday. Yesterday, she told me she'd love to meet you. So I pulled her close, hugged her tight, 
and told her about how some things in this world are worth fighting for, even dying for. Love always, your daughter. Today, if you know a veteran, you need to find them and thank them. And today, if you have someone in your life that's already given their life for this country, let's remember those men and women, and let's honor them with everything we have. Amen. Tomorrow all the things were gone I've worked for all my life And I had to start again With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky stars To be living here today Cause there ain't no flag to fly And they can't take that away Praise for this great nation. Hallelujah, Lord. 
Thank you for the freedoms that we have today. It comes with a cost. Thank you, God, for all the men and women who've laid down their lives, for men and women who've given parts of their bodies and parts of their minds for our freedom. I pray that we don't forget today. And I pray that we hold it dear and we go and tell those who serve this great nation, thank you. And can we as Americans once again return patriotism to our homes and the hearts of the people in this country? Can we return patriotism to our churches again? Amen. Just give God one more hand clap of praise. Sergeant, Staff Sergeant E6, Bill Williford. Come on, man. Come on. For all of our veterans, for all those who have given their lives, God bless you. And have a great Memorial Day. God bless. Have a great afternoon. And remember this great nation. God bless. We sure hope you were blessed by Pastor Bardwell's message. Join us anytime at PCAChurch.com and every Sunday at 2313 East Prospect in Ponca City. of my age.